Welcome to Word Up Podcast. I'm Evie. And I'm Webster. And today we have a guest called Joshua Baumgarten. Oh, wow. <laughs> Evie. <laughs> wow, that's quite an intro. That's quite an intro. Evie. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Webster, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Any of on the uh, on the tech side of things? She's not as a ghost. We're not supposed to pay attention. So... <laughs> so Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome um, to the Irrational Library shop in Harlem Town. Thanks for coming out. It's a great space. We're excited to be here and to find out everything, all the deep secrets you have for us. Deep secrets. Dark mm -hmm. secrets. <laughs> I try to keep my deep secrets in the shallow end of the pool. So to speak. <laughs> We're open. We're open. Yeah. No, let's, let's share. <laughs> Trust me, this is not a safe place. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I'm intrigued. Like I said, it's a, we said this is an, uh, not a passive-aggressive place, it's an aggressively passive place. <laughs> For our audience listening, would you mind describing your shop? Because it's really cool in here. Sure. Um, we are now sitting in the back of the Irrational Library shop on the Dulstraat uh, in Indertuk Swart, 31 Black in the uh, Harlem Town in the Five Hook. And it's a sort of yeah, second-hand record book comic everything that is cool in life shop with two barbers rob and clemens the mad daddies uh we exist now seven years and it's i, I had this once this sort of mantra slogan about the shop if i remember correctly it's sort of like we fill it try to fill up the shop with the influences and reference references of yesterday so the creators of tomorrow know best who to rip off <laughs> wow <laughs> nice so, yeah, so it's a shop full of stuff that you come and hopefully be engaged by and then take it and internalize it and then do your thing with it so to speak yeah. it's a cooler shop in Harlem it's that's definitely you know cool that. I think that's for sure <laughs> is this where you write your poetry uh, sometimes yeah um, I come in in the, in the morning I sit behind my little desk up front there and I just sort of, the guys are busy doing the beards and giving guys haircuts, and I just sort of tune in or tune out, <laughs> and then just start writing sometimes, you know, just, yeah, gives me a lot of time to do that here. But usually I'll some, somehow start off in the morning, be it in the shower or in the gym or somewhere, come a line will pop into my head, and I'll write that one quickly down, and then I'll try to flush it out here. Yeah, because you used to write this waterproof notes in the shower was it oh yeah the aqua notes aqua notes on sale here in the irrational <laughs> library yeah that's a fantastic a wonderful invention i find it's a it's a notepad that their slogan is something like no more good thoughts down the drain or something so that's quite cool notepad you can hang on the wall in the shower with a pencil and then you just write the shit down while you're uh, under the shower and uh, i there was one point yeah my entire shower was uh, filled with these random thoughts and stuff that sometimes will flush themselves out into uh, poems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I forgot all about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful invention. I love that. <laughs> it seems like you draw inspiration from quite a lot of things. Uh, back to your shop again. I yeah. can just see around the walls you've got some beautiful artwork, some trippy stuff. You've got some poetry of yours as well. Is that true? Uh, what you're pointing out right now are actually set lists. Uh, those are set lists from bands who have played either in the shop right. or on nights that I promote in the Patronade or other places. Right. So I just really find it fun always to stick up these uh, set lists from bands and it's all these random words, and, you know, or titles of things. And right. It's, yeah. But uh, 
Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> what am I inspired by? Or, yeah. The shop is definitely a sort of reaction or explosion of everything that I grew up uh, putting into, inducing into myself, sort of, you know, uh, that I, um, when I was back living in New York, uh, where I grew up in suburbs of New York City, a friend of mine, this I grew up uh, with his name Michael Slive. He, when I was 15, 16, introduced me to Sex Pistols. I found a book about Sid and Nancy, and I was reading that, and he was like, oh, have you ever heard the music? And I was like, oh, there's no, no. <laughs> so he gave me a, a, a copy tape of Nevermind the Bullocks, the first the, the album by the Sex Pistols. And, yeah, that sort of opened a whole world up to me of, you know, there were certain bands I was into before that, like Devo and Oingo Boingo, a bit kind of quirky, punky stuff, but I didn't really know there was an extension to it. And the Sex Pistols sort of opened that floodgate to me, and he started taking me down into, he was a few years older than I am, taking me from the suburbs into Greenwich Village, down to, to the city, and then to all these different poster stores and record shops and bookshops and stuff, and I was just like, you know, just gobbling the stuff up. I think my, yeah. my parent, my mom had said, I said, I'm going in the city. Uh, I need some money to buy clothes. <laughs> said, okay, sweetheart, here's the credit card. I, I'll come back with all these, you know, strung out Sid Vicious and Sid and Nancy t-shirts and, mm -hmm. you know, and the bondage pants, you know, and stuff like that. And nice. I'll be like, what is this stuff? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was then the punk rock, um, really expanded my horizons and taught me a lot of stuff about the, uh, seeing outside the lines, seeing outside of what, you know, I grew up watching MTV. Yeah. I mean, I remember moments in MTV history, like when Michael Jackson Thriller came out, coming off the school bus with my sister and running into the house because at three o'clock it was yeah. the world premiere. And, we got a, and so we grew up indulging in pop culture. That's, I went to the mall, I skateboarded, we went to video arcades and punk rock sort of just sort of, put me in contact with the, a lot of the rest of the world, like California and stuff. And then also via that into literature, references uh, from uh, writers that were influenced, or punk rock musicians that were influenced by writers and artists. So the shop is, is that. I mean, there's stuff actually in the shop on the side of the fridge there is a poster of Vicious that is from my bedroom when I was 16. No way. I mean, I, I, mean, I collect and I hold on to stuff because I just yeah it yeah I'd, I've changed but I haven't changed you know I've, I've tried to better myself in yeah. as I've become an adult yeah, yeah, yeah you know but things that I'm accustomed to and I love they stay with me they stick with me and I stick with them sort of thing sorry I said I rambled so. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good ramble it's good ramble um I just wanted to go back to ask about your poetry when do you think that you started writing and since we already heard your influences a little bit? Um, yeah, I think I, I was thinking about that this morning and other people have asked that to me. I have this vague memory of like when I was 13 or 14, my parents had a party at the house for some holiday occasion, so it was a lot of relatives over. And something happened that annoyed me, so it pissed me off. So I remember going in my room and writing an angry piece. <laughs> and I've never stopped. <laughs> no. uh, but then uh, when I was 16, 17, I was in this punk band in high school. And I was a singer, frontman, and I wrote the text. So uh, then I came, I wrote uh, the classic Sexual Operation, 
my mommy had a pussy, my daddy had a dick. Um, I gave her a blowjob because nah, she's such a prick, something like that. <laughs> it's all about saying transgender. It was before its time, I think. Transgender. Yeah. Uh, Setting the trends. <laughs> uh, and so I wrote the stuff then, and then when I was in college, uh, I, I joined a fraternity and I sort of became a frat boy for a very brief moment because it was just like finding punks I ran into in college it were really not my type so but I met these guys in fraternity who were all these sort of reckless kind of weird dudes <laughs> one into Ramones one into the Grateful Dead so everybody was their own bag of nuts so I was like oh I fit in with these guys but then after a while it all went sort of pear-shaped with drugs and alcohol and girls and stuff like that and money and then I reverted back to books again mm -hmm. and then I started writing and then I, then I, since then I haven't stopped. It was a way for me to dig myself out of a mental hole mm. and an emotional sort of like, yeah, uh, it was not in a really, so to speak, good place with, a lot, with certain things. So that was a way for my therapy to write it a lot. And then I sort of, uh, yeah, strange enough, via a uh, Red Hot Chili Pepper song from one of their last good albums, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, where Anthony Kiedis rhymes, uh, uh, I sit on my uh, I sit on the porch because I forgot my house key. I pick up a book and I read Bukowski, something like that. I think. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Who's what Bukowski?" Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was a huge Pepper fan back then. Like I said before, they turned to shit. And <laughs> then um, I was in San Francisco. I think it was where no, it was I was back. In, I yeah, I was on a road trip with friends from college, and we were in City Lights Bookshop in San Francisco. And I saw a book by Bukowski. I was like, oh, is this the guy they're talking yeah. about? So I bought it and it just, yeah, it was the first poet I really was able to get because it wasn't trying to hide behind very a lot of illusions or metaphors or overly pretty language or stuff. It was just like down and dirty, sort yeah. of like rough language. And that I sort of was like, oh, okay, I get this. And I sort of really started to, back when I was in New York and Albany where I went, was going to school, and there was a bookseller there named John Nelson, Nelson's Bookstore. And he had a uh, personal co connection with John Martin, who was from Black Sparrow Press, who, who had uh, published all Bukowski's work. So I used to go to this bookstore a lot and talk with this old man about the books and buy and buy and collect and collect. Yeah. And Bukowski, what is... Yeah, you, you love him or you, you don't, it's fine. But what I really liked about him is a lot of his poems, he writes about other authors, about how they lived, how they went insane, how they created, whatever. And for me, that was this sort of, I started tracing these writers and figuring out who they were. And that was, I started learning about a streaming, a, a, a stream of literature that I wasn't getting in college. In college, it was getting really more or less, you know, what they prescribed to you is what you got to read, dude. Yeah. And then via Bukowski, this list, I was like, whoa. So it's more underground and more un... No, the, you know, it, underground, I don't know. I mean, it was like John Fonte, William Saroyan, uh, all the way back to, you know, Rimbaud, Baudelaire, Villon, Rebelis, uh, uh, Garcia Lorca. Okay. Uh, you know, it was people from writers from around the world and just very you know, engaging so stuff like that really influenced me so but yeah back to your question yeah, again rambling uh when i was in college that's really where it sort of set the tone for me and i haven't stopped writing since then yeah. so i'm like really curious now to hear your poem that you have for us yeah you said it has to be a short one but yeah I like that. This one's got a bit more meat on it. Um, it may be coming out. I have a new book in the work. Uh, it should be coming out sometime in the spring. 
And I think this one's in it. I'm not quite sure. Uh, this one's called Leave It All As It Should Be, Not As You Think They Might Like It To Be. Leave the dictators to their piles of dirty dishes, the fascists to their fascination with fractions, and the conservatives to their unhealthy concern for Kabbalah. Leave the liberals to their lizard skin collections, the professional athletes to their contemplation of their own lifespans, and the orphans around the world to their opinions about single-use plastics. Leave the garbage men to their cherry picking, the politicians to their arguments with their own spouses, and the Hollywood elite to their ever-increasing lactose intolerance. Leave the poets to their Rubik's Cubes pastimes, the songwriters to picking pistachio nuts from between their teeth, and the exotic dancers to paying back past taxes. Leave the junkies to their double dutch jump rope, the professional bowlers to their Budweiser blue balls, and the weekend warrior badminton players to their uncircumcised shuttlecocks. Leave the high school teachers to their stock investments in Kevlar, the lunch ladies to their frozen pizza preservative Fridays, and the school bus drivers to resisting every impulse to drive off a cliff. Leave the Mexican day laborers to their salted margarita daydreams, the orthodox rabbis to their all-you-can-eat kosher buffet at the crab cake factory, and the Mormons to their insecurity when it comes to eating Swedish meatballs. Leave the neo-Nazis to their needlepoint swastika pillow-making, the Muslim Brotherhood to their bow-tie community-controlled chaos, and the Harry Krishners to their hopscotch game through a hostile universe. Leave the punk rockers to their safety pin conformity safety net, the hip-hop heads to their eight-point scrabble word score for the N-word, and the country music fans to the chewing gum stuck under the seats at the Grand Old Opry. Leave the barbers to deal with the insecure vanity of all the white boys with beards, the tattoo artists to all their misinterpretations of life that a person can persuade into their own skin, and the piercers to all the loopholes in life that may help another to get over their hangups. Leave the storytellers to their fabled lives of imaginary nobility, the acoustic guitar slinging troubadours to all their songs strung out on catgut, and the burlesque dancers to all their belly buttons filled with boa feather dust. Leave the newscasters to their Muppet-like open and shut mouths, the journalists to their fear of being murdered, their graves labeled fake news, and the talk show hosts to the horrors of polite silence after midnight. Leave the shopkeepers to ponder what to do with all their extra stock, the cafe owners to all the empty tables waiting to be occupied by cockroaches, and the fast food franchises to their pockets full of cash smeared in human fat. Leave the gods to their congregations buttoned up with fear, the choirs with their vocal cords strung like nooses around their necks, and the atheists to believing that they have all the answers. Leave the universe alone to manifest its own mayhem, leave the distant planets as uninhabited as they currently are, and leave the future of humanity a whisper of peace and success with sorting out the mess that all of us up until now have scrambled into tiny little pieces of asbest. Wonderful. Thank you. I want to clap. <laughs> <We can> clap. <laughs> 
Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I, the first poem I heard that I remember was Build a Mosque. Yeah, Build a Mosque. Yeah, that's a classic. That's, I love that one. <laughs> but you're very uh, experienced on the stage, right? Yeah. I, um, again, I believe it was around the college time that I started going to poetry readings and performing. And then I was, when I lived in LA, I didn't do it so much because I didn't really, uh, I worked a lot. And then when I went, I didn't really feel comfortable in the atmosphere there. I didn't feel like I was making a connection with people. And then it was a year before I lived in Holland that I lived back with my parents in the suburbs of the Manhattan. And I would go into the city and I met a, a cool bunch of people. They did something called Mind Gorilla. And I would go to those readings. And those were fun. Because the guys who ran it, they tried to make them fun. They brought like noisemakers. Instead of clapping, you make noise and stuff. And it was really a mixed bag of, of, of you know, weirdos. And, <laughs> and then I started performing. And poetry readings are tough. I mean, uh, sometimes I remember once in New York City at a bar, you, you wait three hours for five minutes. You're like, <laughs> 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 and someone gets up with like, you know, like stack of papers. And the myth of the gonolith of Zagatoris means that, and yeah. like, whoa, what are you talking about, dude? Okay. Um, but yeah, and, and then when I got here into ho living in Holland, it's been on and off in the last few years, a bit more on. And it depends on the atmosphere of the yeah. event. But do you uh, still feel jitterish? Do you still feel nervous on a stage? No. No. I, there's always a nervous energy. And sometimes when I'm reading my handshakes, but that's some sort of weird sort of palsy, you know, it's like, it's, I'm not nervous because I've done it enough where I don't have to be nervous, that I'm confident enough that I'm going to choose out the right poems that are connecting or are going to try them to connect with people yeah. and see what people uh, take from it. And, you know, it's, I see people performing uh, without paper and they get it all out of their head. I'm so cool mm. that's great <laughs> but that to me doesn't really work because that means you got to put in a lot of time to remember it practice I'm way too lazy for that yeah it's just and then i sometimes feel it becomes a bit acting like you were just mm -hmm. reciting lines yeah. yeah and and not to say that people are but i i have this thing about the page you know when i see old films of of poets performing with their with their book and that's why when I perform with the band, that's why I have the music stand and all my text there. And I love how you throw the paper on the floor all the time. Like it's, it's really. <laughs> at, the, at the show, last show at the New Anita, at the end, I kicked this music stand into the crowd. Uh oh. <laughs> Nobody got hurt, right? No one got hurt. Okay. I thought, afterwards, I thought it was kind of, kind of, kind of lame. Three D poetry. A guitarist can smash guitar. Guitar. What can I do? Throw my page on the ground. Yeah. Or I have this thing. I throw my microphone down and, and okay. smash like the the, the the grill of it. I had to buy new ones because it was so like, <laughs> it really looked pretty sad. What's the weirdest thing, or the, what's the most interesting thing that happened on the stage over the years? Oh. <laughs> I wish there was a good story about that. I don't really, I don't know. Oh, well, it, it had nothing to do with poetry, but it does have something to do with poetry. It has to do with the time that Patti Smith called me an asshole. 
<laughs> that's, that's always good. And I'll try to make a long story short. I was working as a host at Down the Rabbit Hole Festival the second year, and I was hosting the second stage there. And I had asked to host the stage because Patti Smith was performing. And I've never been a huge Patti Smith fan, but respect for her work, the people she's worked with, the fact that she's still doing it, and she still does what she does. Power, you know, no doubt. So I asked to host the stage, and I knew the people running the festival. I worked there before. I worked for Lowlands with hosting stuff. So I was like, yeah, sure, great, cool. So the first day of the festival, we have a meeting, and they explain to us, of course, you know, uh, as a host, you have to make contact with either the artist, the manager, or something to let them know who you are and what you do, if they're what they want, if they're wanted or not, you know. And I'm like, well, I've been hosting stuff for a long time, so I know how it goes. Cool, no problem. So the whole day, I'd, I'd waiting to see someone from the Patti Smith group dealing with other bands and some performers really love what I did and some were like no we don't really want that okay fine yeah uh, and I had built up this whole intro about Patti Smith as the godmother of punk rock of being influenced by the French romantics and this whole sort of yeah. thing you know to really tell the people in the audience who might not really know who they're dealing with this is what you're gonna get so finally it gets towards showtime and the, the whole is buzz and hustle and bustle and I see my stage manager and I say to him, Bart, have you met anybody from her crew yet? And they're like, yeah, that guy over there, that's her manager. And I see this guy, this little dude, big black cowboy hat on, you know, a shirt and a black vest, open with the hair coming out and all the laminates and stuff like that. He looks like an elfin cowboy or something. <laughs> and I'm like, he's like, uh, what was his name again? Shit. Um, I forget exactly his name, but he says, yeah, that's Eddie. And uh, oh, okay, cool. So I'm sort of like a bit nervous, you know, but I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> so the guy, I see the guy barking orders people and he's walking towards me and I sort of like go, hey, I sort of just jump in front of him and go, hi, excuse me, you're Eddie, right? He goes, no, my name's not Eddie, it's Edward. I forget exactly what his name was, but it, it was like, I called him by one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's Edward. I go, oh. Okay, hey, <laughs> my name is Joshua. I'm the host of the stage. I'm going to be introducing Patty Smith in a, a little bit. No, there is no introduction. It's just a walk on. And he just walks right past me. I don't lie. Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right, fine. That's okay, fine. That sucks, but so that's the way it goes. You don't have to be a dick. <laughs> but uh, so it goes. So there's no introduction. So I watched the show from the side, on the side of stage by the uh, by the main, the tech panel, or whatever you call it, you know, front of house panel or the whatever. That was a brilliant show. I mean, 60 what, you know, playing all the classics and she just these, these song with all these shout outs to old school, like William Burroughs and the crowd's like, mm. and then Kirk Cobain, and like, yeah, and then it's Jim Carroll, and they're like, Ooh. And I'm like, Jim Carroll, man, that's the beat. Anyway, um, so show's wrapping up and she's pulling the guitar strings off. Of, I think they do My Generation at the end, you know, pulling the guitar strings off and show ends, crowd, uh, and they're walking off on the other side of the stage. So I come from the other side of the stage and I grab the mic and I'm, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, down the rabbit hole, let me hear it for the one and only godmother of punk rock, Patty Smith, blah, blah, blah. and um, you know, uh, 
I said a few other things about about her, and then I round it off with, you know, in the immortal words of French romantic poet Charles Baudelaire, who said that you have to go out and get drunk, get drunk off of life, drunk on the wine, drunk off of the good times, go out there tonight, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and get drunk on life, and down the rabbit hole, go out there and fuck like rabbits, or something like that, you know, <laughs> something right. like punk rock crazy fun, yeah. you know, and I had also said, you know, we should all know where we were at this moment because we witnessed a legend. So I was like, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so I walk off the stage. I walk behind stage. And then from the behind the curtain, I see down there um, the Eggie screaming at uh, Bart, the stage manager. Now, Eddie's a dwarf. Or not a dwarf. He's just a short little man. Small man. Small man. <laughs> and Bart is tall. Big Dutch guy. So he's with the finger waving up and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, that doesn't look very good. I'm going to just walk the long way around. So I go a long way around the backstage and I grab a beer and I sit down. And then Bart comes out and he goes, dude, they're pissed. And I'm like, who's pissed? And he's like, Patty Smith, man. She called you an asshole. Oh. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. I was like, what happened? She's, now, she walked off stage and she, heard, and then she sat down in a chair. And this guy, Eddie, was putting on his shoes. And because shoes are off, he's putting shoes back on. And then here's her, she hears what I say, and she says, "What? I go out there and bust my ass for an hour working. This asshole goes on stage and says that." <laughs> wow! Like, what the fuck? You <laughs> So then there was this ripple effect of like she's pissed, so her manager's pissed. Manager's pissed. Manager calls booking agency. Booking agency is pissed and calls direction of the festival. Direction of the festival is pissed, so he calls the guy who booked me, who's running the festival, wow. who's pissed. So it's this whole ripple effect that I didn't even really know was going on until the next day when they came and found me and like this guy who had hired me to do the job, who I knew from Harlem, from Patronati, says, you know, asked me what what was going on. I said, well, great first day, but I guess he heard. And he said, yeah, we almost had a fire last night. I'm like, why? It's like, yeah, well, um, they told you there was no intro and no outro, and you just went and did it. Oh. And I was like, wait a second, let's rewind this. Who told you that? And he's like, yeah, this guy, the manager, Eddie, told you that there was no intro and no outro. So now we're going to stop because this asshole <laughs> told me there was no intro. and said nothing about an outro. Oh, and if it's in the contract that you guys signed with her, you fucked me. Oof. I didn't fuck you. Yeah. I do what I'm told to do. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. You know, I I take the job seriously. You're going out there. And so it was, yeah, they were like, well, yeah, other people are saying you, you're too busy on the stage. You're too basic. I'm like, ah, fuck off. <laughs> so that's why I don't work for Mojo anymore. Oh, jeez. I hope not to because I think they're a bullshit company. Put on bullshit festivals. Put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> No, wow. I do. I think they, they booked the big bands and it yeah. looks so glorious and stuff. Yeah. But it's so tight-assed. I think you have to be nice with people, you know, when you're working creatively, you know. I didn't think they they understand what I do. And I think that has a lot to do with how I am as a person. And it's just more honest than maybe most. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that was, that was the weird story. It's a long story. But that was the weirdest <laughs> probably thing that happened to me on stage. That One of your, your heroes can all of a sudden call you an asshole for like just trying to inflate Elevate them, look them. them, look good. Yeah. And now every time her music comes on, I have to turn it off. Or <laughs> people, she just played in the Paradiso, I think, sometime last year. People are like, so are you going to go? Are you going to call her? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? I'm like, no, I'm not going to go. <laughs> but I do wish maybe one day 
<laughs> I'm on a festival or something yeah. hired to do what I do with, with the band or alone. And she's there as well for some reason. I could sit her down and be like, Patty, there seems to be a misunderstanding between us. You once called me an asshole. And she'll be like, who are you? <laughs> the asshole. Oh, 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 you. Oh, you. you you're, you're not an asshole. You're a dick. Right. Well, yes, there are, that's true. But uh, so. On the flip side of that, you keep coming back on stage. Uh, so, what positive vibes are you getting that make you keep performing, even when people do call you an asshole? <laughs> that was the one time, and it was such a rare thing. And and like I said about working for a major company doing major festivals, I'm glad I had that opportunity to do it. So I thank them for hiring me for that. But I noticed that it just doesn't work. Where here I do hosting for Harlem Refining uh, Pop, which is again a big festival, and I the. I'm like, you guys know how I am on stage, right? Before they hired me, they're like, yeah, but that's what we want. So, okay, fine. So every year I go out there and I do my thing and I, 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 I curse, I do what I do, but I try to engage the people, you know? It's like, as a, as a host, you bring the audience and the band closer together and then you step away. Yeah. So that sometimes takes a lot of, a little bit of work. You know, you have hosts go, all right, the next minute, and then they walk away and I think, why are you there in the first place? Yeah. If you're not there to engage the crowd, pull them closer, taunt them even, you know, work them up, mm -hmm. and then feed the band. Yeah. You know, and then vice versa. Um, it's fun, but I also and in performing was, I don't like being in the crowd anymore. I like I like having something to do. Right. I like being useful. You know, I, work, I worked at a club a number of years ago, sort of underground artist community thing called the Feats and Fabrique here in Harlem. And this girl once said to me, she says, you know, you only like it when, when you feel needed or necessary. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> duh. <laughs> Isn't that part of what we are as humans in a community that you should feel, want to feel that you're needed by other people to take part in things, to, to, to contribute? To connect. You know, yeah. To connect, yeah. yeah. So to me, being able to either perform or host or be on that stage is a way for me to connect or help other people to connect by either the things I say or just the presence of being there. Um, and then I've gone, I just, yeah, I've grown into that. So being just a passive observer sometimes just doesn't really work for me that much anymore. And yeah, it's, you know, being on stage is sort of, you get to rock out, you, know? you get to do your thing. You get to put what your, your creative juices out there and it's fun. It's, you know, uh, you get invited to go places and meet new people. Um, you maybe get a free meal or a free, few free drinks, but you get, you know, you come in contact with people. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely attest, I think we all can when we've seen you on stage, you have this very unique energy that gets people engaged from the moment you step on, we're paying attention and you got this sort of really rustic kind of like grungy voice <laughs> and it's super deep and you know, people love listening to you. You got really high energy and when you do deliver, your words mean a lot. We could tell that you've chosen very specific wording to tell your story, and you're not just a mouthpiece saying something that you feel about. So, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, well, I feel there's a responsibility also when you, you, you get on stage. And there were points when I was younger where I was a lot more nonchalant about it. 
you know, I thought oh, I'll drink seven beers before I go on stage, and it's all fine, you know, go, uh, going through that sort of Bukowski sort of idea. <laughs> and then I re and then you sort of, I grew up, and I grew out of my influences. They're still there, and they've helped me along the way. They got me to where I, where I am today. But now I feel like now I'm flying on my own. I can do this, and I it's, and but it's all the things I've internalized and flushed out of me that, you know, my biggest influences are not per se poets, but stand-up comedians. Um, guys like um, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Bill Hicks and Richard Pryor, early Eddie Murphy, uh, even a lot of newer guys like, uh, you know, that's one thing I love about Netflix is you get all these uh, stand-up comedians and you're just going to take it all in. <laughs> you know, there's this... Um, thing on YouTube where it, uh, called Frankenstein, Frankenstein's Lab as these two black guys sitting there real casual in a room and you, they show a small clip of a comedian and you're just watching them sort of react to them <laughs> laughing yeah. and then afterwards they'll make a few comments about it but they don't try to dissect it it's yeah. not I don't know I'm not really sure what, what the point of it but I find it's, it's almost like sitting in a room with <laughs> Two guys you're getting along with, yeah, and laughing at the same shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they usually really pull out stuff that has to do with, with, with race or you know ethnicity or stuff like that, which is very touchy in America nowadays. Yeah. And I find it really engaging to see how people react to that in a very sober and, or maybe they're even really stoned. I don't know, but it's like <laughs> intelligent way without getting their pants, uh, getting all like, oh yeah. my god, oh my god, he said that? this, oh my yeah. god. You know, and that's the scary thing in America. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the stand-up comedians, because I find, I tried stand-up comedy a number of years ago for like six months. Someone told me I was funny. So I'm I thought, good. okay, <laughs> let's try stand-up comedy. But it, it was so difficult to make people laugh. Because mm -hmm. they sit there so judgmental, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then you got a really timing is intrinsic. So there's so many different other things to, to doing stand-up comedy than say spoken word or poetry and then for me i'm able to incorporate my own sense of humor into my text and also the way i bring it up across on the stage so um yeah it's i've created for myself a sort of crossover effect which uh yeah i always feel like we can talk forever yeah we you. can i know because I ramble. <laughs> I like talking, but it's However, fun. I enjoy it. It's almost time to wrap up. I just have one last question. Sure. From we'll make all this the last. <laughs> <laughs> um, from all the experience and good advice you got, what is the advice you would like to pass on to people who may be starting writing or performing or doubting about it? What's the best thing that you can give? What's your word of wisdom? Um, yeah. That's a good question. I mean, uh, uh, you know, in that sense, sometimes I fall back on uh, what Bukowski has on his gravestone, which I always think is very, very cool. It's, uh, it says, "Don't try." And then, you know, people sometimes people get a bit thrown off by that. They go, "What do you mean, don't try? Of course you got to try. If you don't try, you know." But yeah, that's not what he meant. Of course, you know, it's do it. Yeah. Don't try it. Just do it. And that makes sense to me. It's like, you know, it's, and that's what I've incorporated into my own life of like, is this who you want to be? Then be it. Is this what you want to do? Then do it. 
don't go half-assed into it. I mean, you know, we all have our days where we feel half-assed and lazy about whatever we do with our lives, right. and that's part of life. But, you know, I've, I'm very fortunate with my life. I'm very grateful for the situation I have with my family, my wife, and my friends, and all this stuff. And a lot of people have helped me to do this. But I know I couldn't do it unless something got me out of bed every morning and say, do this. Sit down, write it, you know, have a little bit of a faith in yourself or be self-critical. Uh, don't be afraid to look at yourself in the mirror and, and, and just be honest with yourself. I mean, and that sort of helps people get along the creative process. You know, if I look back to things I wrote when I was in my 20s, I'm sort of, yeah, it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, but then I understand where now where I am with it all. And the idea of also growing as a person and trying to evolve as a person and evolve with your understanding of how to deal with other people. Um, yeah, my sister once said to me years ago, she said to me uh, that I was very selfish. I'm a younger, I'm the younger sibling, so of course it's. <laughs> yeah. But I said to her, you know, I said, I think, look, if I don't spend this time now trying to figure out how to deal with myself, then I'll never know how to deal with other people. Yeah. And that was, I felt a valid, a very valid statement for myself because I needed that. I needed to funnel, channel into myself what the hell was going on with myself or the world to be able to deal with it. And that's also helped for me to live here in Europe because here I feel like much more of a world citizen than if I was living in the States. And I feel like I'm just part of this thing I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And how do you break out of that? Or push those walls away it's a lot more difficult yeah and totally. here I think when you move from somewhere else in the world and you end up here especially a place like Holland to uh, you know close to the big city and a nicer city or a nice city you, know, you have that you can sort of push the walls further far, far enough away from you that they don't come in down on you mm -hmm. and then come in contact with people from around the world and that really brought in my mind and my sense of being Oh, wow and hearing stories from other people from around the world what they've been through and where their experiences are and, you know the coolest thing is via the writing I know this guy a filmmaker in South Africa and I was like, I still every time we have contact I'm always really tickled by that I think we've never met each other but we call each other brother <laughs> have this yeah. somehow connection with one another mm -hmm. and uh, respect for one another and I hope, yeah, one day to get down to South Africa to, to meet each other. It would be kind of cool. Um, yeah, it, sorry, again, rambling. But as far <laughs> as words of wisdom, just do what you feel is good. And don't listen to what other people have to say to you. And if you trust them, take what they have to say to your heart. And then let it go. Don't carry it with you. You know, there are things I can remember that people said to me years ago that I still carry with me. And I think, why am I still carrying that bullshit with me? Just be true. Yeah. At the end of the day, you only got one person to deal with, really, and that's yourself. So be true to yourself and, and keep it up and try to put out something that's going to contribute to uh, maybe a better understanding of who we are and, and who you are. I'll leave it at that. Sounds great. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you guys for coming out on this snowy Sunday. <laughs> so, Josh, where can we find you? Uh, for that gratuitous self-promotion moment of the show, Webster. Um, Facebook, yeah, we have uh, the Irrational Library headquarters is the shop. Uh, I have a page um, 
uh, Joshua Baumgarten, uh, Poetry of Modern Urban Hope is sort of my Facebook page for writings, but I also have a blog uh, under that same name. Uh, the band, The Irrational Library, also on Facebook, then also on Spotify and Bandcamp with the album Now That We Still Can. And I think that sort of covers the basis of where you can find me at. Shop has, we have a website that's in work in progress. Uh, it'll be back online, I think, in a week or two. That's Irrational Library Puntanel. So, uh, yeah, we're out there. If you want to find us, it's not too difficult. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been the Word Up Podcast. And as usual, uh, you can find information about us on www.wordupodcast.com, where you also find some very useful information about our guests. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Joshua. You're welcome. Have a fine day. Thanks for listening, folks. Do we? <laughs> <laughs>